Welcome to a new episode of the video log series of the Center for Law and Economics. Today we have Chris Badafosco from uh, Cardoza Law School in New York. And we're going to be talking about his uh, book chapter titled Intellectual Property Law and the Promotion of Welfare. Uh, this is joint work with a colleague of yours, Jonathan Mazur at the University of Chicago Law School. And uh, it relates to a broader research agenda, I believe, of yours. Uh, the two of them also have a book out called Happiness and the Law with a further co-author in the University of Chicago Press, 2014. Chris, you're, you're an IP scholar and you explained to me yesterday that intellectual property um, doesn't just give the owner a pot of gold, right? Um, it's instead only valuable insofar as you can sell it to other people. So IP has a very big, close connection to the markets and basically tells people, you know, go make, make things that people want to buy. So um, you challenge this notion in, uh, in this book chapter. Um, could you explain us what's wrong with this? Why sure, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It's uh, delightful to be here in Zurich and uh, it's great to, have to, get to talk to you and your colleagues about this. Um, right, so the standard theory of intellectual property law uh, in the United States, both constitutionally and academically, is one that is based on um, uh, a utilitarian or consequentialist view of what IP is there to do. That IP exists to incentivize creators to make things that we want. Um, but it's that last phrase, that we want, that really seems to matter. Because what IP law does is it encourages people to make things that satisfy human preferences. The standard theory of IP so far has been one that's based on enhancing people's ability to satisfy their preferences. So IP rights exist to give creators opportunities to sell things in the market. What that does is that it drives them to uh, look for places in the market that mean that people will want to buy stuff. Uh, and, and this sort of preferentist theory of, uh, of, of what makes people's lives go well is, is an important one in law and economics generally, in economics more broadly, uh, and in particular in IP. Right? The idea that um, your life is going better for you if you get to satisfy more of your preferences is um, a really important and strong one, uh, but one that we think, uh, both in our book and in this chapter, uh, is flawed for a bunch of important reasons. And so what we want to do is to put forward uh, a different way of thinking about what intellectual property law should be doing. Uh, that instead of trying to satisfy people's preferences by, by following markets, instead intellectual property law should be driven by a goal of increasing people's subjective well-being or their happiness. Right. Great. Um, so you think IP law should be more focused on increasing people's happiness? So I guess kind of the obvious follow-up questions, do we really know what happiness means? Can we measure it in any meaningful way? Uh, right. So this is a great question. And, and so the reason the preferentist theory took hold back in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, was precisely skepticism about the ability to measure welfare or utility directly. Right? Because we can't see inside your brain, we don't know whether um, you know, eating that tuna sandwich makes you happy or not. Right. Right? All we can do is observe your choice of a tuna sandwich rather than your choice of a bologna sandwich. And so now we know your welfare is higher. So this is the standard theory. 
Over the last 30 years or so, uh, scientists have begun to look for ways to measure people's happiness more directly. Uh, and it turns out you can do so in pretty valid and reliable ways. And the best way to do so is simply to ask people. Uh, so in a variety of different survey instruments, from large-scale longitudinal studies that track people over decades to small-scale studies that ask them questions repeatedly over several days. The key is to just find out, on a scale of 1 to 7, how happy are you right now? Or on a scale of 1 to 7, psychologists love 7s, on a scale of 1 to 7, uh, how do you feel like your life is going these days? Right? And then using this data, uh, about how people feel like their lives are going to correlate with the other objective circumstances in their lives, their health, their marriage, their education, their wealth, those sorts of things. Cool. Um, so maybe it'd be helpful if you could give a concrete example of how, um, what, what, what type of things, uh, according to the data that we have, what would that mean we push more than, or in a different way than today in IT? Uh, right. So, so the data have showed us that a lot of things are, are interestingly important, in part that a lot of people make a lot of mistakes about the sorts of preferences that they have. Right? So, so when we think about what people want, it turns out that what people want is often what will be best for them, but not always. Right. And they tend to make a bunch of systematic mistakes with respect to that. They make what are known as affective forecasting errors, which is to say mispredictions of their future emotional states. Um, and so they might tend to make mistakes about uh, the fe feelings they'll have with future health states. They may make mistakes about the value of, you know, getting a new appliance, mm -hmm. right? People always want bigger TVs, it turns out. Bigger TVs don't make people happier. As soon as you get the TV home, you fully adapt to the fact that your TV is now six inches longer than your last one. Right. Right? And so people make these mistakes on a regular basis. Um, and if that's the case, there might be opportunities for intellectual property law to intervene uh, in ways that allow, um, that encourage creators to produce the sorts of works that are likely to be the ones that are uh, most conducive to actual subjective happiness. Right, okay. Um, one, one example, specific example, I discussed in a paper that where I think this can be seen very well seems to be pharma. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could just walk us through the ways in which in, in the field of pharma, this um, dominant way of how IP works kind of fails the standard of you know being in the best interest of people's happiness. Absolutely. Right, so I think a lot of the criticism of the preferentist approach and the market-based approach has come from uh, scholars and others who realize that when you encourage firms via markets, right, then they tend to produce the sorts of things that people who are wealthy want to buy. Mm -hmm. Right, because people who are wealthy have a lot of money, uh, and those sorts of people get their preferences satisfied, even though people without a lot of money tend not to get their preferences satisfied. Um, one way to think about this instead via happiness is to look for opportunities to encourage firms to develop pharmaceuticals that will not be the ones that necessarily have the biggest market share, but right. the ones that have the biggest increase on subjective well-being. Right? So look for the sorts of ones that will likely make people better off. Right. So instead of, of, of chasing you know, the, next, you know, the next baldness cure, 
right? Look for the next best drug that treats a, you know, a, a population of, of people in the developing world where, you know, they have been underserved right. for generations. Uh, and so the opportunities well, the rare for making disease with few people, the rare diseases with few people, although it's a small market, so you're not going to be able to sell a lot of drugs. There are huge opportunities for welfare improvements in those because people aren't, haven't been looking for them, right? Firms are not incentivized to look for them. So there might be opportunities to use patent law uh, to change either the scope or the duration of patent rights, for example, um, in a way that, um, that encourages firms, pharmaceutical firms, to look for drugs that will have the biggest impact on subjective well-being. Right. Brilliant. Um, so, so, so far we've been talking about patents mm -hmm. in the context of pharma. Um, the other uh, area of IP law that you discussed in the paper is copyright. Right. Um, how, how does your theory affect um, affect copyright law, and especially uh, how does it affect the, the producer side? Right. So so far we've only talked about the effects on, on consumers, basically. Right. Um, but uh, and that seems to be the only thing that matters for positive IP law as it's understood now. But right. it doesn't seem to be what you have in mind when you discuss your theory. Right. I think that's great. Right. Because. So in, in patent law, we can make some reasonable judgments about you know, whether a drug or whether a new innovation is going to make people's lives better off. Uh, it becomes really hard to do that in copyright. Right? It's really hard to say that you know, the next Taylor Swift song generates a lot more happiness than right. you know, the last uh, Katy Perry song mm -hmm. or something like that. Right? Subjective preferences and all that make it really hard to, to do. Uh, although I have my own private <laughs> beliefs. Um, so uh, what we can do, though, um, is begin to look at the ways in which uh, producers' um, behaviors uh, are important for uh, from the perspective of their own welfare and their own happiness. Uh, so traditional IP law counts uh, creation as a pure cost, for the most part. Mm -hmm. right? It says we need to be able to give people financial incentives to do a thing they would otherwise not want to do. They would all go off and like not write songs or something like that if we didn't give them money. It turns out, not surprisingly, right, that writing songs is hugely welfare enhancing for people. That uh, exercising creativity is an enormously valuable thing that people get to do. Uh, so that means on the one hand, uh, from a happiness perspective, we may be substantially over incentivizing people because they would be doing this anyway because right. of the happiness fun, that they yeah. get from it, the pleasure that they get from it. But also on the downstream end, it means that we might need to think carefully about the ways in which copyright law uh, restrains future creators. Right? So the derivative works right in copyright law gives J.K. Rowling uh, the exclusive right to all of the future Harry Potters that will ever be thought right. of for the rest of her life plus 70 years. Um, that gives her an incredibly strong ability to restrict the creative outputs of a whole bunch of people, millions of people, who want to explore their own creativity within the Harry Potter universe. Mm. Um, all of those people are now potentially subject to you know, copyright lawsuits. Should they you know, put their work out in the public? Should they put right. it online? Should they distribute it? And so we might want to think about the ways in which copyright law uh, implicates and impacts negatively uh, the ability of downstream creators to mm. get pleasure from the things that they do as well. Right. Okay, cool. Great. Thanks for being a guest today and for the very insightful paper, Chris. And uh, thank you for joining us on the VLOG series today. If you don't want to miss future episodes, subscribe to our channel below.